Buddha compared practicing meditation in Dhamma with rubbing two fire sticks together. If you want to, this is the way people use them with fire, they don't have matches. If you want to get a fire from rubbing sticks together, you've got to keep on doing it. It's no use rubbing, stopping, rubbing, stopping. You're never going to get far. You're never going to get concentration by starting, stopping, starting, stopping. It's got to be continuous. If it is continuous, it will definitely happen. Just like rubbing two fire sticks together. Here in the course, we've had that opportunity to rub these fire sticks together. If we don't avail ourselves of that opportunity here, then we're certainly not going to do it at all. Here we have the opportunity to do it continuously, not sitting here continuously, but being attentive continuously, watching. Practice is not just sitting here. If that were all, we'd never get anywhere. What I've been talking to you about were not only the stages of purification, but contained within them have been the factors of enlightenment. Unless you know those things by heart, you wouldn't have recognized it. But I will draw your attention to them. There are 37 factors of enlightenment. Factors means faculties. We've got them. Doesn't mean we're enlightened. We've got to cultivate them, develop them, get them to the point where they become power. The word power is, of course, in our language, suspect because it means power trips and um, power blocks which means power over others in this terminology it means power within oneself and over oneself without power there's very little that one can accomplish so the faculties or factors lead us becoming powerful within. That power then becomes unshakable and results in seeing things as they really are. On this path of purification which I've been describing, we have come to that particular point where it is a purification of our understanding of things as they really are. These 37 factors of enlightenment need four more 
to be added to them in this explanation because those haven't been mentioned yet. The others have the four foundations of mindfulness becoming really introspective and aware about physical action, about our feelings, about our mental formations and their content, four foundations of mindfulness. The four supreme efforts, not allowing the unwholesome to come in to the mind. If it's in, let go of it as quickly as possible to rouse the wholesome and to maintain the wholesome. The five spiritual faculties, mindfulness at the top, and the two pairs which have to balance, energy and concentration, faith and wisdom, heart and mind, love and understanding, faith and wisdom. These are just other words for faith and wisdom. Out of the five spiritual faculties arise the five spiritual powers which are exactly the same thing. Faculties turn into powers when we cultivate them to the point where they have become part of ourselves. As long as they are somewhere out there in a book or in somebody's talks or something which is a concept, they have absolutely no inner meaning for us. And the only way they'll ever get any meaning is if we practice it. That's practice. Meditation is part of it, but that's not all of it. Surely nobody can possibly assume that one morning, one hour in the morning and one hour at night of meditation is that's exactly what it is. It's one hour meditation in the morning and one hour meditation at night. That's all it is. Practice is from getting up to lying down to understand, be aware and use any of these faculties that we have for development and cultivation. Then we have the Noble Eightfold Path, which I haven't gone through completely in all its details, but it consists of the three divisions of Sila, Samadhi and Sanya, moral conduct, concentration and wisdom, and we have discussed those. Then there are the seven factors of enlightenment. And those have been part of the explanation to a very, in a very detailed way. Namely, the first factor is again mindfulness. And you can see how important mindfulness really is. It's always at the top of the list. The only time it's not at the top is in the Noble Eightfold Path. There it is the seventh factor. Mindfulness without it 
we don't know what's going on, do we? We've got to find out what's going on within. And as we find out what's going on within ourselves, wisdom cannot help but arise. If we understand what's going on. If, of course, we get angry and just get angry, well, nothing much is happening, is it? We're just getting angry and we're going to get angry again another time or upset or whatever it may be. But if we understand that angry is a reaction to not getting what we want or getting what we don't want, we've got, we've got on the path because then angry is a lesson and so the same with everything else the seven factors of enlightenment as we start with mindfulness I need mindfulness in order to even become aware of them now mindfulness is also connected with memory if we can't remember we haven't paid attention. Now, obviously, memory, human memory is faulty. There's no getting around that. That's natural. But as I've said several times before, and probably will say several times again, before we're through with it, natural isn't exactly peaceful and harmonious. So natural isn't what we're after. Mindfulness and in, in increasing mindfulness gives increasing memory. Because it's very simple actually. If we read something, I'm sure we've all had the experience that we've read a whole page and all of a sudden realize we can't remember what it said so we're going to have to read it again. We only read it again if it's an interesting novel and we can't make out the next page. No mindfulness. If we hear something and we're not paying attention, if nothing makes any impact. There's some words there and uh, quite interesting, but no impact, nothing at all. Mindfulness means that we're becoming one pointed to what it is that we're doing. So if we're reading, becoming one pointed to the meaning of the word that we're reading. And if we really want to remember it and have a visual memory, we remember where, where it is printed. Some people have a visual memory. And if we remember where it's printed, then we remember. So if we can remember, we can start to practice. After mindfulness, the second factor of enlightenment is the investigation into phenomena which I've been talking about in respect to impermanence, dukkha and substance or qualities. That's the investigation into phenomena. To get a grip on this by looking at it and seeing whether it's correct or, as I have said, by seeing if the opposite is correct, whether there is a self, or whether something is 
solid and permanent, or whether there is something that can give us continual, non-changing, unconditional happiness, not dependent on outer conditions. So we can look for the opposite, or we can look for the truth. And then comes an interesting one, which will appear again and has already appeared. One which we don't pay much attention to at all in our lives. Energy. And energy was already one of the spiritual faculties. And it will appear again in the four roads to power, which I will explain in a moment. Energy is mental energy, which of course provides physical energy. It may provide physical energy even in an old body or in a decrepit body. Hardly anybody's body is perfect anyway, but some are better than others. But mental energy is the factor which provides the buoyancy and the interest in the mind and the ability to continue. So energy is so important that it is a factor of enlightenment. It's the opposite of having to have a rest having to take it easy, having been so tense or so overworked or so upset or so whatever that one has to just completely take it easy or lie down and do nothing. Without energy, it isn't going to happen. We have innumerable excuses. They are as long as that whole hall here, our excuses. Too much to do, too much work, too old, too young, too early, too late, too hot, too cold, too full, too empty. The Buddha said, a fool uses those excuses. A fool was about the worst um, abuse that he ever used. He didn't ever use anything more than that, but he did use that quite a lot. <laughs> and uh, the word in Pali is Bala, B-A-L-A, and it is the same word as child. Or the child, the same word. So it's childish or foolish. We usually translate it as foolish. Energy regenerate by using it. It doesn't come from not using it. If we lie down and do nothing, and keep on lying down and do nothing, we'll keep on lying down and do nothing. We're not going to get energy from that. On the contrary, our mind is going to get less and less able to arouse itself. By being aroused, it will be able to continue that. 
the more we give out, the more we've got. I said already that this is a law of nature, certainly applies to love and compassion, certainly applies to energy. The more we use it, the more we've got. Don't believe it, try it. And after those first three come the four stages of the meditative approach which I have discussed with you. Now here, the words used are a little different from the words used, from the words I use. And the first one is tranquility, a uh, rapture, sorry, rapture, repeating. And the second one is tranquility, the third one, concentration, and the fourth one, equanimity. But you can see quite clearly that these are the four steps of the first four meditative thoughts. So they belong to the factors of enlightenment. One can hardly imagine, but apparently it's possible, that one can bypass that. It is said to be possible. The Buddha certainly um, did it that way. Now these I have discussed with you. So you have heard the factors of enlightenment bar the four which I shall explain now. And they are called Idi Pada. Now Pada means a path. Same word. P-A-D-A path. Just the D is changed to a T which very often happens and then that last A is got, got into an H. English is one of the languages which has evolved out of many others, but also out of Sanskrit. And Idi is power. It's an interesting word. Our words are actually the expressions of our thoughts. Otherwise we wouldn't have those words. So, Linguistic understanding is sometimes quite helpful. Idi in Sanskrit is Siddhi. Same word. And you may have heard that word because it's being bandied around in the West now. Siddhis, which are considered to be something desirable and are used, the words used, for supernatural power, like levitation or um, mind reading, that type of thing, coming out of India and actually being sold in the world. The Buddha would have nothing to do with it. He said, that's not Idi. Idi is something entirely different. Power is something entirely different. Not supernatural powers, which are permissible to use if you have already become enlightened. But if you haven't, you're wasting your energy in the wrong direction. Everything we do needs energy. Everything. Whether it is getting up in the morning or putting the feet on the ground needs energy, although very little but it does. But the mental energy to get up, we all have had some experience of that. There's nothing that can be done without energy. 
and practicing supernatural powers does take a fair bit of energy and because an unenlightened person will most naturally use those powers for the enhancement of the ego look mum what I can do no hands <laughs> it is the wrong thing to do it leads us in the wrong direction it leads us into an enhancement of self rather <coughs> towards that enlightened state where there is no more self where there is no problem at that time of course when there is that state um, available to us using any supernatural powers which one may have acquired on the way there's nothing against that the Buddha used them very very sparingly only in emergencies to help us in an emergency he did but very very rarely and he, it was forbidden to the monks that were not enlightened and the nuns to use them at all so cities which are supernatural powers he turned into idi which is the Pali word for city which is a roadway or a pathway to the power for enlightenment now obviously not only is it powerful to become enlightened but we need power and the first thing that is mentioned in this pathway is will power all four of those steps are connected and have to have as a companion willpower it's a, the opposite of being airy-fairy the opposite of just letting things happen as they do because the easiest way out and the opposite of not knowing what one really wants Willpower can only be exerted when we know what we are. And the understanding of things as they really are, which should eventually arise, should make it possible for us to know what we want. And only when we do can we use those four pathways to pass. The first one is called the concentration of intention. Well, it's um, very clear that that means that we have to find our priorities. And we can look at our own life and be quite certain that that, what is our priority, actually gets done. And what is our priority? In most cases, survival to have everything on hand which is necessary for survival the necessary food the necessary shelter nice little house somewhere little garden few vegetables in it nice clothing nothing fancy of course just clothing 
and medicine if needed, whatever kind we like, homeopathic, naturopathic, allopathic, whatever pathic, any of it, and have a bit of entertainment, read a good book once in a while, turn on the TV when everything gets a bit boring, go on a holiday, whatever. Ah, car, yes, of course, in Australia, absolutely essential. <laughs> Not in this country, you can't get along without it. It's too big. So, that's priority, right? And that gets done because our intention goes in that direction. So, we have the will, the willpower and the will to do it. And it is very interesting in life. Most people usually get what they want. The only trouble is they hardly ever want the right thing. Now, obviously, survival is necessary, otherwise we can't practice. But is that necessary to be the whole of it? Hasn't there got to be something else included? So where do we get an intention for something else? The intention for something else, in some people, arises when they can see that they're dissatisfied. That just isn't enough. It is the same thing day after day. And all the distractions and entertainment which are available and which we can afford, don't do these. Again and again we see that and then the intention arises to add something else. Now that may not yet be the spiritual path, but let's just assume it is. And that's usually what brings people to meditation. Everything else I've got, well, everything's fine, but they're not totally satisfied. So let's meditate, and then I shall be totally satisfied. First of all, it doesn't work. It is not the right motivation yet, and it doesn't bring what we're looking for. And secondly, it can only not only have to be the right motivation, it can only work when we have the whole of the spiritual path as our intention. When we know that meditation is one part of it, that we are looking for a different level of being that we're actually looking for something which will satisfy without outer conditions. Our concentration is still an outer condition, although it's happening within. It's still a condition. So this intention has to become far broader than just wanting to sit down and meditate. Unless it becomes broader, that sitting down and meditating is going to be this off-and-on affair. Like it says at the bottom of these papers that you've handed to me, I wish I could do more often, or um, occasionally, 
infrequently, sometimes, last six months nothing, uh, whatever. You all know what you've written down there. Naturally, there are some people who do it every day. Admirable. But unless that doing is con- connected with the understanding that this is part of a whole, like a tapestry, which has many strands and will only become a beautiful picture when we've seen the strands all within together. Unless that happens, the mind still is going to have to still not satisfy. And then, of course, the first thing to let go is meditation because obviously it's not working. I'm still not satisfied. I mean, I'm not going to let go eating, obviously. I'm not going to sell my car, so I'm going to get rid of the meditation because that too didn't do it. And then we can try quite a number of other things which are being offered everywhere, and uh, some of them are quite nice. They're actually encouraging mindfulness. So our intention has to be rechecked. We need to have a look. All of us have this life. We don't know about the past ones. We don't have to bother our heads about them. They're all gone. They're all finished. If they were, whether you realize they were or not, doesn't matter. We don't have to bother our heads about the future. Because the one who is doing this now, living now, is not the one that's going to get the result. Not totally different either, but it's not the same. So we don't have to bother our heads about whoever is going to be next time around going to have all this um, results from this life. What we need to bother our heads about is what am I doing with this life? And whether we're now 20 or 60, it doesn't matter. Each single day is our rebirth. And if you've ever wondered about this rebirth business, that's it. We wake up in the morning and we're brand new. We have more energy. We have a... We bring with us the karma from the previous day, from the previous weeks, months, and so on. But at that moment of waking up, we don't really pay much attention to that. So we are starting a new life for that whole day. And then, as we go along during the day, we get more tired, get older, and at night, we lie down and we have a small death. During the night, we don't know where we are or who we are. And next morning, we wake up again. So if we can look at each day, at a whole lifetime, that might induce us to do something with each day. Naturally, in reality, we are constantly dying and being reborn. That whole vibration that I was talking about last night, which we can feel within, 
is that constant falling apart and coming back together again. But that would lead us a bit astray because it is impossible or very difficult to make a new determination every single moment. But we can certainly check our intentions every moment. That wouldn't be difficult. It only needs, needs five minutes time. Ten minutes, two minutes. What's my intention? What am I going to do with my life today? This is my whole life, from morning to night. We don't even have a guarantee that we shall be alive that same evening. But we presume we are. So we'll use a whole day and realize that every moment is ticking away. That can be seen very easily on a digital, digital clock. If you watch one of those clocks, you can see how time is running out. Now, time is obviously a man-made um, substance, but we are living within that worldly level, so we need to look at it that way. Once we have transcended that, we don't have to worry about it. So our intentions need checking. If we do that every morning, we'll eventually come clear on that. And there's no way that a thinking, intelligent person will remain within the single intention of the one. It is connected, of course, with hedonism that I will only live once and um, let's have a good time. Actually, in a manner of speaking, it's correct. You only live once. Because the one that's going to come around next time and bring this karma again is not me. But the interesting aspect, of course, is once we come to know that this isn't me either, none of this matters. So we, we have to look and see what is most important and also what brings satisfaction. May I be able to protect my own happiness? What is happiness? Is it hedonism? Is it pleasure? Is it indulgence? Is it doing nothing? Do I, am I happy that way? Is um, Escapism happiness? We've all tried it. We keep on trying it. It's a personal choice. And the Buddha again and again urged his listeners to check it out for themselves. Naturally, he gave of his wisdom, insight, compassion, explained it. But Everybody does what they can themselves. The second one of the concentration is the concentration of energy. And here we come back to energy. The concentration of energy, and all of them are connected and accompanied by willpower. The concentration of energy 
because we do not have unlimited energy, we have to concentrate on that which is most important. Again, I will say that naturally we have to survive somehow or other. But what we need for our survival is far less than what we want. And it is important to have an understanding that needs and wants are not synonymous. That's very helpful because it reduces our energy expenditure for survival and leaves some open for something else. If we have a little less time and energy spent on just surviving, we have space, we have room for something else. And that makes it also possible to be more mindful, more attentive to ourselves. If we are in hustle bustle, which is one of the factors that takes us away from attention, very difficult. So the less we dissipate our energy, the easier it is to lead a spiritual life. A spiritual life does not mean sitting in a cave. It doesn't even mean although it could, living in a, um, in a place like this. One can lead a spiritual life in, the, in a flat in Sydney, in a, in a house anywhere. It's not the outer environment that makes a spiritual life. It's the inner environment that makes it a spiritual life. However, in the beginning, the outer environment, of course, helps. If the telephone doesn't ring all day, if there aren't people at the front door all day, if there aren't too many trucks coming by and cars, naturally that helps. It's very helpful. But in essence, a spiritual life is the inner life and not the outer life. And the spiritual life is the constant watchfulness over our own defilement to substitute and change them and the constant yearning for unity and union for a universal level of consciousness where the world remains as it is, but our contact to it, our reaction to it, changes very much. Because our level of consciousness has much more breadth and scope, much wider, much less individualized and selfish. So our intentions need then the support system of the energy, which all needs the support system of the power. 
and because we are limited in our energies like um, like fuel consumption I mean we have to conserve that we can't just give out without any um, thought to its quantity so because of that we need to again also check how do I use my energy do I use it truthfully or do I squander it every morning and if I don't do that every morning I'll keep forgetting it's a thing that needs constant watchfulness The other two pathways to power, the third one, is the concentration of consciousness. Now, my teacher, who is a very old monk in the forest of Sri Lanka, once asked, not by me, by other, by other people, what were the most important things to do on the spiritual path mentioned those four parts that they are the most important things these were all um, these were not monks and nuns that asked these were all lay people the concentration of consciousness now I've already given inkling to that now our consciousness, our ordinary everyday consciousness, we all know it. We've been confronted with that ever since we can remember. And even before that, but what we can remember. It's what we like and what we don't like. It's what is mine and what is yours. It's what we can buy or what we can sell. It's what we can get and what we can get with it. And what we can become and what we want and what we don't want. It's a constant dichotomy and dualism in which we live. A duality. And because of that duality, there is constant stress and stress. It's never just totally at that's why we like down, like to lie down and uh, maybe take a, a novel or something to get out of this dichotomy and duality. Because this dichotomy that we live in, this duality that we are, we are here and everything else is over there, <coughs> provides us with the difficulty of having to relate to that in a manner which will not disturb peace. And we can't, we can't relate to all that in total peacefulness because some of it we like and others we don't like. So we're always faced with stress, with strain, with trying again and again and getting to a point where it doesn't give the mind that what we really want. So our consciousness is the problem, has the problem, 
of being individual. It's mine. And because it's mine, I see everything with the viewpoint of me. Single, separate, and totally discolored by my own opinion. Now yesterday, for instance, you were, someone was asking why one person would get a pleasant feeling from something that another person would get an unpleasant feeling from. Obviously, this has to be so. And because this is always so, because we always only think of our own ideas and can't even imagine that somebody else thinks that their own idea is totally correct, because it seems so silly the way they are doing We are totally alienated from the law of nature. Our, our feelings can never be exactly the feelings of someone else. Our reactions are never the same as somebody else. And if we only know that, it's never to be anything. So through the meditative process, we have that possibility of becoming aware of infinite consciousness. Infinite consciousness means that we become aware of the fact that consciousness is, but isn't mine. It is. And if it isn't mine, through the meditative If we have the meditative experience, the consciousness which exists without being individually owned, we can take that with us into our daily awareness and realize that although we do need our individuality in order to survive, it's meaningless. It isn't any truth to it. In reality, the truth is that consciousness is there. All of us have it, but none of it is individually owned. And then we no longer have to convince anybody. We don't have to argue. We don't have to feel that somebody else is stupid because they don't think the way we do. They're silly. We don't have to think any of that. Because individuality is a mistaken view. And having our individual reactions only comes from the fact that this is the way we have been acting all the time. And that, of course, releases us from having to try to be, uh, try to have our relationships with other people on a peaceful level. Nothing can disturb that anymore. Because their consciousness is also part of universal consciousness. And whatever they are putting out as individuals is only a mistake. That's all it is. And then our duality feeling, our dichotomy, our separation feeling, our alienation feeling is completely lost. 
and it's all happening. So our concentration of consciousness needs to have, first of all, the understanding that there is something else which we can get through the meditative process. And also, on the other level, to put our consciousness into Dhamma practice as much as we can remember. Not to try to react in the worldly way. If we react in the worldly way, it's always going to be a problem. We either we get it or we don't. And if we get it, we can't keep it. And if we don't get it, we're already unhappy in the beginning. And if we get it and then can't keep it, we're unhappy a little later. So there's no way to win on the worldly level. This has to become clear through the understanding of Dukkha. This has to become clear through one's own introspection. And if we then have this intention and this one-pointed intention and use of energy and concentrate our consciousness under all circumstances or as many circumstances as possible towards the Dhamma, seeing that everything changes. It's all different all the time. Everything stops and starts again, arising and ceasing, within us and outside of us. It's not just in here, it's everywhere. When we see that, when we see that whatever we put out, that's to our benefit. So when we keep in mind, in permanence, our own karma, the reality of an infinity, a universal aspect of which we are a tiny microcosm, then our daily consciousness will be imbued with Dhamma consciousness. And only then do we have a real spiritual power. If we get upset about them, we haven't got any Dhamma consciousness. It's impossible. Now that Dhamma consciousness may arise again, certainly, after the upset is all over. But we've slipped. So as we have slipped, we can say to ourselves, Aha, I lost the consciousness which will smooth out my inner life. Let me get back to it. Each single day, intention of the Dhamma consciousness. If we feel depressed, um, put upon, uh, downtrodden, whatever it is we feel like, that's not Dhamma consciousness. That's worldly and um, separation, alienation consciousness. We have to be clear on that. We have to be clear that Dhamma consciousness sees the whole. Individual consciousness sees only what I want to get. So every time the mind goes into a state of uh, dislike, resentment, envy, anger, depression, worry, fear, 
every time the, the mind has this feeling of I'm not being appreciated somebody is doing something wrong to me not Dhamma consciousness we've got to change our consciousness to that to the understanding of that all that's in here is what I'm putting out there's nobody doing anything except I'm doing it and then we can realize the our own karmic resultant we can realize the constantly changing nature of everything we can realize a universal aspect we can constantly bring ourselves back to anything that we remember about the Dhamma that's why the Buddha recommended as an antidote for our hindrances to learn more about the teaching to have the teaching in mind one of the things that also helps which I won't do during the courses because also it's also distracting is to learn the chanting in English by heart there are all suttas, all discourses at least one has something that one can remember because the chanting helps one to remember it um, um, has a rhythm anything that has a rhythm is easy to remember whatever we can remember of the Dhamma that brings us Dhamma consciousness now the concentration of that consciousness will bring us to the point where the worldly consciousness no longer intrudes where the Dhamma consciousness becomes the only one we've got at first we are of course on a sort of um, um, seesaw now I see it, now I don't, up and down now a little bit, ah yes, no I shouldn't be feeling like that how should I feel, ah yes, I remember something so it's a, it's a little difficult at first but as we practice this it becomes easier and easier until the time comes when the truth has been seen and there is no other consciousness that doesn't mean that we can't survive the Buddha survived very well for 45 years after his enlightenment and I'm not even saying that this Dhamma consciousness is enlightenment please don't misunderstand that it's all these are pathways all these are faculties towards enlightenment which will make our lives so much easier so much more harmonious and peaceful that we will never hesitate to go, f- to go further naturally living in a competitive world where people want to get a little bigger slice of the cake tests us to the utmost we have two choices there one is to step out of that competition and say I don't want any more of that I want to have I want to practice more the the Dhamma so I need to step out of this competition and try to survive in another way that's one way the other way is to use that competitive world as our testing ground and say how much Dhamma consciousness can I retain while I'm still doing this the second one is more difficult and we need a greater willpower and greater concentration but nothing can compare 
to changing this selfish individual um, and difficult way of looking at things with getting the Dhamma as one's constant underlying uh, basis. It's the one way of having buoyancy in the mind at all times. Because the Dhamma never lets one down. The Buddha said, when one has this Dhamma consciousness, or lives according to Dhamma, one lives exactly opposite to what the world lives like. But that isn't an exterior, that's interior. Within, it's a different reaction. Naturally, in the beginning, we are always caught in the same reactions again. We have our same reactions, but when we know that they are not helpful, that they are nothing but the individual way of trying to protect self, we will gradually change that. We mustn't think that any of these instructions mean that we have to be perfect tomorrow. What these instructions of the Buddha show are ways and means of getting rid of dukkha once and for all. And if that's what we'd like to do, then we can try to actually live according to those instructions as best as we can at this time. The more we do it, the easier it becomes. Our concentration of these states means that we remind ourselves again and again that this is where we're going, that this is our priority. We have to make sure that we know what our priorities are, otherwise we don't have a direction. If you look again at this uh, simile of a road map, if you don't know where you're going, well, which road are you going to take? There's so many on a road map. What is the destination? If we know our destination, we can uh, plot out the best way to get there. But if we haven't got a destination, other than death, which we all have in common, then, of course, which road? The map is full of them. Only one of them can be taking us to one or the other destination. So we need to have that as an understanding within. Where am I going with this? What am I trying to do? The last one is the intention of investigation. And the uh, concentration on that. Now, investigation is a little stronger than mindfulness. Mindfulness means that we're becoming aware of what is. But investigation means that after having become aware of what is, we want to find out why it is. That takes an energetic mind, a clear mind, a mind that knows what it wants. And as I said before, we usually get what we want. But do we know what we want? 
Do we want to have the world go by and be left in peace and do nothing? Well, we can get that easily enough. But does it bring happiness? Do we want happiness and peacefulness? Do we want spiritual growth and emancipation? What do we want? Or do we want just a few minutes of peace and quiet while we're meditating? Or what is it what we want? We need to make up our own mind. Nobody can um, make up the mind of another. So investigation, of course, includes mindfulness, but it just goes much further. For instance, on a fairly worldly level, if the mind is again and again disturbed in the meditation by one particular thought process, it's time to investigate. If it's constant different thoughts all mixed up together and not very clear even, that's not investigatable, that we can't investigate. But if it's one and the same thought coming up again and again, then it's time to investigate that. And the first thing is, is to realize that now this is a disturbance. Why? Get an answer. Because I lost something that I want to keep. Why is that disturbing? Obviously because I haven't taken note of the law of impermanence. Although intellectually I can agree to it, the law of impermanence, I cannot live it. I'm being disturbed by having lost something that I want to keep. So now, looking at it this way, is it possible for me to let go of this wanting to keep? If I can't let go, why can't I let go? Obviously because I'm beset by clinging. If I'm beset by clinging, does that give me happiness? Obviously it doesn't. So do I really want to be unhappy? No, I don't. So what am I to do? I have to let go of clinging. How can I let go of clinging? If I can see that it's only my own individual reaction to something that I want to have, and this has no significance on a spiritual path other than showing me the error of my thoughts, maybe I can let go momentarily and see the relief. This is one way of investigation. It can go further. It can go down to the ego level. This is one way of investigation which helps us and also in our daily lives. It doesn't have to be only in meditation because often enough we are disturbed by things. Why am I disturbed? Why are these people bothering me? What is it that's bothering me about them? What I, don't I like about them? They are too loud, so do I have to react to that? Constantly putting it back to one's own investigation. But in, we, on a deeper level, the investigation means that we are again and again remembering to investigate everything that comes to our intention by trying to see whether 
it's impermanent, whether it produces dukkha or whether it has a substance of core or whether it's substanceless. Now, the last one, the third one. The third one is the epitome of insight. And only that will bring us to that commitment to step beyond the worldly life. doesn't mean we go somewhere. It's all happening inside. The commitment to find the unconditioned. Only when we have come to an understanding of that aspect, which is the one we call coreless, substanceless. Now, that needs investigation, again and again. What is it that I believe to be the inner core of all I know, particularly myself? Concentration of investigation means I do it over and over and over, again and again and again. Now, if we don't do that, we're not practicing. It's as simple as that. Sitting an hour in the morning and an hour at night is not practice. That's exactly what it says, sitting an hour and an hour. Practice has to have all these aspects in it. And when we do that, when we actually practice like that, and it needs no special place. We don't have to come here to a meditation hall to do that. The only reason you have to come here to this meditation hall is to be reminded what, what practice really means. It takes milliseconds to investigate like that. It takes no time. It takes no special place. It takes no special person. It doesn't take a meditation course to do that. It's life. The opposite of Nibbana is Samsara. Samsara is the wheel of birth and death, which means our ordinary life. And the opposite of that is Nibbana, the stopping of that wheel, that um, merry-go-round. But where do they exist, both of them? They both in in exist within us. There's nothing out there that's doing it. We've all got it in here. So, investigation for the truth of the Dhamma is that what we do in daily life. We cannot divide the spiritual life from the daily life. Life is life. Either it's worldly, totally worldly orientated, or it is spiritually oriented. And if it's totally worldly orientated, we have already seen that that doesn't satisfy. So when we want to orientate it spiritually, we need to look. And again and again, we can use the Buddha's instructions. But they're nothing but tools. They aren't 
the relief, they are not peace, they are not uh, harmony, they are not enlightenment, they are tools. And they are the tools which are, have been proven to be effective. That's all. But we must wield the tools the way we need to wield them. You can give the same tools to two carpenters and they will use them differently. One might even be a left hander. These are all tools and we mustn't let them lie around and rust. As long as we have been given tools and our meditation practice is one of the tools, we must try to use them effectively and all the time. So if we have intention, energy, Dhamma consciousness, and Dhamma investigation, all coupled with willpower, we cannot fail to get the pathways to power which bring us into a very effective way of practice. We can look at it like this. If a car gets stuck and it won't start, and you have to start pushing it in order to start it, very difficult, you need a lot of effort, you've got to get it going. But once it starts rolling, all you need is a little push behind and it keeps rolling, even though it wouldn't start in the beginning. So this is the willpower behind it, the push. And that willpower depends on each person and it also depends on one's own understanding. How far has one understood that there is another level of inner being where this worldly misery which is constantly up and down that swing that we sit on is not necessary and then we can use those four pathways to power as much as possible as much as we each one can and then we have all 37 factors of enlightenment at our disposal what more can we do you have been told about them in a very short period of time. Naturally, the um, practice of them takes longer. The most important thing is not to forget. So that may be enough about that. Maybe you would like to ask some questions. Yes. Four? Seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, energy, and then the four factors of the first four absorptions. Tranquility, a uh, first uh, uh, rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. Right? Seven. Yes. Yeah, well, I didn't invent that. <laughs> they, they are called, sometimes the Buddha talked about seven factors of enlightenment, which are those seven, right? 
And other times he talked about all 37 factors of enlightenment. So he, and in that 37, the seven are included. Sorry, that's the way he did it. <laughs> yes. How many? Ah, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. oh, did I say that? Sounds all right. I can see the investigation as one way of Yes. Well, <laughs> right. Um, now that page tells you all the identifications you have, right? Okay. Now that doesn't mean that you have to just remove all these aspects. I mean, you can't remove being a man. That's also an identification. So what you need to do is to remove this as your ego support. Yeah, yeah. The ego support that it provides, because it provides the support of, look who I am. And this is also what we do in both ways. We do it, look how good I am, or look how bad I am. It's both the same thing, inferiority and superiority. So you don't remove the actual thing, but the clinging to it, yes. Is there a, Well, the investigation brings you the understanding that these clingings are making you unhappy. So the next step then is because you have to support them. You have to show that you're really that. You have to constantly show that we're really that. Um, so when you see that it pro provides lack of peace and it provides um, striving, and therefore not happiness, then the next step could be I'm a fool to make myself unhappy. Maybe I could just be instead of being somebody and see always the impermanence, see again and again the dukkha that's provided by that. I think dukkha is probably the very best um, handle in this respect. Okay? Not at all. Um, you can do. Uh, you can use it as a contemplative factor, certainly. But not necessary. In daily living, we, most people don't have the time 
to sit down when something happens and say, well, now let me contemplate this, what's happening here, so that I can, you know, react differently. But, uh, exactly, <laughs> because people don't have enough. This is something that you were also saying yesterday, and apparently that provides a difficulty for you. Maybe I should relate to that again, what you said yesterday. You said you become aware of your reaction, but you don't become aware of the initial sense contact plus the feeling. That means you're not going inside of yourself to see what is causing the reaction. Milli millisecond. Not at all. No. Immediate. It's immediate. Well, if the Dhamma understanding has become fairly solid, then it's an it's a habit. It's immediate. Uh, psychoanalysis, yes, maybe that takes a long time. I have no idea. I've never done it. <laughs> it's possible that that takes a long time. <laughs> it's quite possible. But you see, when this investigation that we make of, of ourselves, um, the feeling is there, and now we're reacting, okay? So this reaction hasn't even come to fruition yet. I haven't said anything yet, but there's a little um, anxiety or whatever it may be. And we realize that the feeling has come from some sense contact. No, and so we can see that immediately. And the more we practice it, of course, the quicker. Now, in all our daily, um, daily activities, when we can remember that this individual consciousness, which sees everything as solid and compact, desirable, unchanging, can never bring happiness, we will try to see it differently. We will try to see it not so desirable, not so compact, constantly changing. So we change our consciousness because we have investigated and have made sure that this is really so. Change it. The intellectual understanding is a reading of the roadmap. If you don't read the roadmap, you're not going to use it. You've got to have intellectual understanding. After having read the roadmap, you've got to start traveling. The two have to go together. I mean, if you're illiterate and you get a roadmap, you know, it's no good to you. And or if you get a, I mean, there are people who can't read roadmaps. I used to be one of them. I mean, I had to wait till somebody, you know, said this is the way you go. But I learned to read roadmaps. So, um, you know, if you can't read a roadmap, it, it, it's hopeless. You don't know where you're going. But if you don't go there, it's also hopeless. So first you find out where am I going? What's my destination? Yeah? That's a very, very important. Otherwise, the best, uh, best uh, revidex isn't going to do you any good, right? So then you've got your destination. Then you find out, where am I? Where's my spot of departure? 
right? So, okay, I'm here, I'm meditating, I'm not getting concentrated, I'm getting concentrated, I understand that the impermanence uh, is something I should investigate. Okay, that's where I'm at. Okay, what's my next step? And then keep on doing it. And as we keep on doing it, we need first the intention, then the energy, so that we don't dissipate our energy. People dissipate their energy terribly. And you do all sorts of things which have absolutely no real value, and the energy is, gets lost. Naturally, we don't have unlimited energy. Some people, um, having trained longer, have more, but unlimited, it is hardly uh, possible to think that anyone who is not enlightened has unlimited energy. So then we have that, and then we, we see, aha, I'm thinking in worldly terms, I'm in thinking in individual terms. Can I change that by looking and in inspecting impermanence, or dukkha, or non-self, or investigating? Mm -hmm. <coughs> Because you were making yourself uh, equal to somebody else or smaller than somebody else? Yes, that's correct. Yes, that's quite right. It, uh, it doesn't matter who, what one does. It doesn't matter whether one cleans toilets or whether one washes dishes or whether one writes books or whether one spouts the Dhamma, it really makes no difference at all. The only thing to do is to do it with the understanding of the Dhamma, with mindfulness, which brings then that investigation. And if we do it with that investigation, we can see that there is no individual that's doing it. It's just being done. And as we see that more and more, the whole thing changes dramatically. Now, of course, saying it like I just did is quick and easy. It's not that quick and easy. But that's why we've got to keep on investigating. Who is doing what? Who is thinking? Who is feeling? Who is talking? What is it? And if you keep on getting the answer, me, well, obviously, you've got to start again. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes. Uh, yes. Um, your your common sense should have part on that. We should never negate common sense. Um, am I totally satisfied with the way I am or with the way things are? Or do I want to go beyond this? Um, reality which we call relative uh, to something that's more absolute and if your common sense tells you yes then 
choose between impermanence, dukkha, or anatta, not callousness, choose one and keep it on hand again and again. Now, impermanence is something that's very easy to keep on hand all the time. Anatta, not that easy, but energy and intention. During the day, the uh, what I was the rela- relationship I was making is unfortunately the sixth jhana, not the first. <laughs> In the sixth jhana, it's the infinity of consciousness which arises which shows one quite clearly that there is no individual consciousness. So um, it, it takes a little further than the first. That's one aspect of Dharma consciousness, and the other aspect was in daily living. Right? Now, first jhana, of course, does have at least that much um, result that one sees that thinking isn't really so desirable, that experiencing is all. So that has that result. But it doesn't have infinity of consciousness in it or universal consciousness. Okay? What else? Anything else? Yes. The, the first one is a person that has a lot of faith um, because the Buddha says look everything is impermanent and we don't really believe it and we always have very much uh, many people have resistance to it also even though they can see the impermanence in themselves they still don't want to know about it um, so a faith person is inclined towards investigating impermanence and a person that has a fair bit of concentration is inclined for, towards dukkha but these are only um, generalities because sometimes we have more of one, more of the other, and then we like to shift, which is fine. It's not quite like that. Faith and wisdom have to be balanced. Mm. They can... Oh, they explain the dumb. 
You mean that somebody who is an alcoholic and hits rock bottom, then, yes, and then experience a, a, a way, has a way of experiencing then a, a non-self moment, and then what does he do with that? Really? How wonderful. Why don't we just get drug addicts and uh, and alcoholics here? (laughs) That'd be wonderful. (laughs) I don't think it's quite common. It's quite common. Fantastic. Wonderful. What do we do with it then? With that experience? Well, that is true. That part of it is true. But the surrender process does not necessarily imply the experience of non-self. Yeah. Surrender is is quite true. It's one part of the process of uh, no longer having so much uh, wanting, desiring, uh, self-will and listening to something higher than self-will. But that still does not imply non-self. But it certainly is a good start. Mm. Uh, Possibly. Um, It's a good start anyway. It's a good start. Yes, but that is not a faith person. That is a, uh, these things do happen to people who are not alcoholics and not a drug addicts. Uh, they have um, um, an experience, and it's very rare, it's not common, it's very rare. Um, they do have an experience which they can't understand and do find their way to a spiritual teacher who was able to show them a road map. But it has nothing to do with faith. It has something to do... So what's the second one? Yes, absolutely. Faith and wisdom have to balance. The world map provides wisdom. Absolutely has to have it. In fact, nobody who is not either a Buddha or a Jesus can get along without it. Everybody needs it. Only those people who find their way themselves. I mean, there are others, but I'm just mentioning those two because they're known to us. There are others that find it without that, but an ordinary person has to have a woman. And the faith person needs it very badly. And uh, the... um, a person whose concentration needs it very badly because otherwise what does the concentration bring? You know? So everybody needs it very, uh, as a as an, um, guideline. Important. Okay. 